Hello and welcome to Atelier Eight Podcast. Amira Chandan, co-head of Global FX Strategy at J.P. Morgan, and today I'm joined by Roberto Enriquez, uh, who heads credit research for European banks and real estate for J.P. Morgan. So let's just um, state this up front. There's a lot um, to digest in macro markets, and the cross currents uh, do keep shifting. Uh, U.S. bank stresses are still fresh in our memories, uh, even if they have de-intensified. Uh, but if I look at macro markets, um, it looks like only treasuries and gold are showing lasting signs of that flare-up. Um, and you really have to go down to pretty niche sector-specific uh, market indicators like bank stocks or credit markets to see sort of the uh, lingering effects of that banking stress um, episode. Um, and, you know, aside from all the banking stress issues, I think the other thing that's happened on the macro front is that you're seeing a pretty decent pickup in activity data outside the U.S. This has gone on for a while in China for a couple of months at least, but now you're starting to see initial signs of that in Europe as well. So a lot to discuss, uh, but really uh, want to focus the discussion today specifically to the topic of differences between European and U.S. banking sectors uh, through the lens of our experts. And that's why we have uh, Roberto on today. And of course, uh, then eventually we will draw this out to what this means for the euro and the dollar more broadly. But let's start with the building blocks first and uh, go through the outlook for the banking sector in Europe. Uh, Roberto, um, you've been more constructive on European banks, uh, even when stresses had intensified in the US. Uh, part of this was about insurance and composition of deposits between US and Europe. Uh, can we just start by discussing this particular issue? Uh, yes, indeed, Mira, and thank you very much for the invitation to participate in this podcast. Um, so, yes, our base case is that the deposit flow dynamic in the European banking sector is completely different uh, to what we are seeing in the US. And I think there are essentially two very significant differences which uh, really differentiate the European and the US banking sector. Firstly, and probably the most important reason why we've seen this volatility is the reaction function of depositors in the wake of developments at smaller US banks. Um, I would also say that there's a second reason why there is potentially a bit more of a liquidity challenge for the US banks, and this has to do with the more aggressive pace of quantitative tightening by the Fed, um, which obviously has an impact on sector liquidity. Um, so just to talk about the first point, which is all about deposit flow dynamics and which has generated a lot of volatility, uh, especially amongst the, 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 the smaller US banks, um, you've seen a situation where you know, there's been quite a lot of deposit flight from the smaller banks to the larger money center banks. Uh, and this is clearly causing funding pressures at these smaller institutions. So this has really been at the heart of the stress that we've seen in the European, in the US banking sector. Now, this is entirely rational if you're a depositor and you see similar situations where depositors are put at risk, uh, you have a strong incentive to try and mitigate any risks. And that's why you see, you know, really this deposit outflows from the smaller banks to, to the larger banks. Now, we kind of, quite confident that this is not going to happen in Europe and there are some very important structural differences. So first and foremost in Europe, we have frameworks for dealing with distressed banks such that they remain a going concern. And this, this is critically important because it means you don't test recoveries across a liability structure. Maybe equity or subordinated debt may be impaired, but it's fairly unthinkable in the context of the European banking sector that depositors would ever face losses. I guess what we've seen in the US is that failed banks uh, tend to get liquidated, um, given you know any other solution to keep them as a going concern. And as a result, 
recoveries can be tested as high up in the liability structure as deposits. So when you had the failure of some small U.S. banks, the FDIC intervened. And basically the communication that was given to the market that, you know, if you were under the guaranteed threshold, then it was fine. And, you know, you would have access to your funds. And if you were above the guarantee threshold, then you essentially given a toll-free number to call. Um, and clearly, this is something that has resonated and reverberated across the, 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 the U.S. banking sector to the extent that we obviously see the authorities having to implement remedial measures uh, to try and shore up confidence in some of the affected banks. So I think this is very important in terms of you know, how bank failures are addressed. The focus in Europe is really to keep them as a going concern so you never get to the situation where you actually test recoveries and force potential losses on, on, on depositors. Um, I think there's also another important component, which is the hierarchy of deposits. So really in the US, it's very simple. You either guaranteed, i.e. below the 250,000 threshold, or you are not guaranteed, i.e. you have a deposit in excess of the 250 guarantee threshold, uh, in which case you would rank pari pursue with unsecured creditors. And in that scenario, you obviously face losses. Uh, in the EU, you have a much more tiered system, which essentially means that retail depositors, be it, regardless of whether they are below the, the, the guarantee threshold or above the guarantee threshold, will always rank super senior to unsecured creditors. So when we're talking about retail depositors that can obviously sometimes be quite flighty, they have a higher ranking in terms of uh, in terms of seniority so again that's another reason why you won't have a scenario where depositors are going to be faced um, with, with losses so i think all of this is something which is very very important and makes it very unlikely that we would see the type of deposit flows or liquidity flows that we are seeing in, in the U.S. banking system, and which is obviously um, undermining the liquidity position of some of the smaller banks. Uh, on the second point, which is really just with regard to the impact of quantitative tightening, obviously the Fed is going at a much more aggressive pace than the ECB, uh, and this is ultimately resulting in a reduction in overall liquidity in the, the US banking system. Um, and most recent data that we included in, in, in the recent publication showed a decline of about 420 billion uh, in, of deposits since June of last year uh, in, in for the US commercial banks. And clearly we don't see this trend for European banks. System-wide deposits have continued to grow into the start of this year. And I think this is really a function of uh, the pace of quantitative tightening done by the ECB being done at a much more moderate pace. Um, I think lastly, and again, to reiterate why, you know, some of the developments that we're seeing in the U.S. banking sector are unlikely to be replicated for the European banks is, is really with regard to the deposit base uh, that European banks have. So European banks, by and large, there's a very strong focus on retail banking. And obviously the deposit base tends to, to, to reflect this. Deposits tend to be a lot more granular and tend to be a lot stickier. Uh, and this is a clear differentiating factor when, you know, we look at some of the 
institutions that have failed in the US as a result of deposit outflows, they tended to have a deposit base which was much more uh, geared towards corporate. And as a result, you're talking about uh, a less granular deposit base. And that can obviously uh, really have negative implications in terms of the uh, impact of, of deposit outflows. For all those reasons, um, we actually think that at least from a liquidity perspective and a deposit perspective, uh, European banks are in a much better position vis-a-vis -vis their, their US peers. Okay, so that gives us some good context on why deposits in Europe will be stickier. Now, you highlighted some other reasons uh, to be constructive on European banks as well. Some of that includes the liquidity uh, provisions they have, as well as uh, the composition of their, um, uh, their assets as well. Uh, can you just uh, shed a bit of light on that, uh, that issue as well? Uh, absolutely. So I think one of the themes which is really... I guess reverberating in one of you know the asset classes that is under a huge amount of focus is commercial real estate. So um, I, I think you know this is this is one of the factors that is also really undermining the position of some of the U.S. banks. I mean, we've started to have some of the U.S. banks reporting today, uh, and some of the larger institutions are already taking some higher provisions um, for their commercial uh, real estate exposure loans. Um, so I think uh, there, there is actually uh, some connectivity between the comments that I made on the liquidity and deposit situation and the challenges that you have in the U.S. commercial real estate sector. So the, I guess the first point that I made was that it was really the smaller U.S. banks that were facing these liquidity challenges um, because of the deposit outflows. And as it turns out, many of these smaller regional U.S. banks are also quite important sources of funding for the commercial real estate sector. So really to the extent that these banks are experiencing uh, liquidity pressures, it's going to inhibit the, um, their capacity to continue providing funding to the commercial real estate sector. So they won't be able to you know, uh, enter into the amend and extend type of behavior that we have seen in the past and which can obviously mitigate a lot of the asset quality uh, issues that, that may uh, ultimately come back to, 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 to haunt these banks. Um, so that is a bit of a challenge and you can see that you know, a lot of the focus and volatility that you've had in the U.S. banking sector has also been interrelated with, with commercial real estate. So clearly, to the extent that the commercial real estate companies can't access bank financing, then this kind of becomes a mutually negatively reinforcing cycle where, again, if commercial real estate um, companies cannot face liquidity, they're probably going to experience a higher degree of defaults, and that kind of comes back um, to, to, to impact the U.S. bank. So that is potentially quite a negative dynamic, and I think there's going to be an increasing amount of focus on that, again, to really contrast the position of the European banks, you know, they don't have the same liquidity pressures. And so as a result, they're able to continue providing funding to the commercial real estate sector. And it is true, um, you know, the higher rate environment has caused a few challenges for commercial real estate, um, also in Europe. Um, but I think the fact that the European banks are there to provide that liquidity uh, is, is, is extremely important. As a matter, In fact, I would contrast the two scenarios where in Europe, the European banks are providing a solution 
to some of the challenges that the commercial real estate sector is facing. Whereas in the US, the problems that you have among some of the smaller banks is really exacerbating some of the challenges or the problems that commercial real estate is facing. So I think that's that's uh, a, a, an important differentiating factor. Uh, I would also say, you know, to, to, to some of the points that you highlighted, in terms of the actual composition of liquidity and the liquidity position of European banks, they are in a very comfortable position. So when we look at uh, sector liquidity coverage ratios, they're well above the 100% uh, base requirement. I think the last data relative to Q3 of last year was indicating a sector average of 165%. So liquidity is, is, is fine. And I would also highlight that one of the positive differentiating factors for the European banks is that most of the liquidity, and I would say up to about two-thirds of that liquidity, is actually held in cash or central bank deposits. And this is already, you know, immediate cash availability. So contrasting with, you know, some of the liquidity holdings of the U.S. banks, particularly some of the ones that have experienced distress more recently, they tended to have a much higher proportion of their liquidity assets held in securities. And obviously, and this is not to say that, you know, they weren't holding high quality securities. I mean, some of them would have been holding, you know, treasuries, uh, which obviously the, the market value of that has been undermined as, as a result of all the rates moves. So that even though it's relatively high quality assets, you do have a negative mark to market impact, which, you know, for some of these smaller banks was not even being recognized. So the fact that European banks by and large hold at least two thirds of their liquidity position in readily available cash, which is obviously not going to be subject to any, you know, mark to market, uh, ne negative mark to market impact is in itself, um, I guess, a, 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 a positive outcome. So, you know, when we think about the liquidity position, when we think about the fundamental dynamics in terms of how commercial real estate is developing both in the US and in Europe, uh, again, I think it's, 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 it's a reason to be more comfortable with regard to the European banks versus some of the US peers. Okay, so that all sounds uh, pretty constructive. So I'm going to end uh, the final question with uh, maybe a little bit uh, more negative undertones to it. So let's just shift the focus a bit to vulnerabilities um, in the region. Um, say we were in a scenario in which banking stresses were to flare up again in the US, uh, would there be any access of differentiation uh, within the European region, either within, within the Eurozone itself or within Europe as a whole among other countries? Is there any points of vulnerability that really stand out to you? Uh, yes. So, I mean, it's uh, clearly to the extent that, you know, we have the situation where some of these uh, some of these volatilities continue unabated, be it in the U.S. banking sector, be it in the commercial real estate sector. That is obviously going to bring. Uh, a lot of focus, I think, to housing markets in general. Um, and I think, to be fair, even though 
the picture from a fundamental perspective for, for the European banking sector is actually quite positive. Um, the sentiment has been negatively impacted by what we've seen in terms of house prices in, in certain uh, jurisdictions. So I think, you know, the, the best example is probably Sweden, where even the Riksbank has been quite bearish in terms of its guidance with regard to house prices. And here the problem that you have is, is a fairly generalized one, I would say. So the fact that uh, policy rates have been increasing across the board basically means that mortgage affordability is becoming a challenge. Um, and as a result, to the extent that mortgage affordability becomes a challenge, this dampens the demand for, for house purchases. And as a result, you can have some of the corrections that we've already seen, for example, in, in, the, in, in the Swedish housing market, where I think the house prices on average are about 15 to 17% down uh, from, from, from the peak. Um, so that raises some questions in terms of what that means for the asset quality of the banks. And we have done quite a lot of work specifically with regard to the Swedish banks uh, and, and Swedish real estate. And one of the things that I would highlight is that, you know, as a function of what happened during the financial crisis, regulation has really been tightened up to the extent that, you know, underwriting standards um, have improved dramatically across across the board. And I would actually say um, underwriting standards for some of the Scandinavian countries tended to be quite high. The, the, the regulator or the regulators have historically been quite conservative. So. This basically means that even when we talk about um, residential mortgage books, the average loan to value tends to be um, tends to be relatively low. So I think for most of the Swedish banks, uh, you know, your loan to value is somewhere between 40 and 50 percent. So even when we think about some of the more aggressive uh, price corrections that you can have in the housing market, even something, let's say, of a magnitude of a 30% correction, that would basically imply that your loan to value would go from, let's say, about 45% to 75 or even 80%. And even under the, that kind of more dramatic scenario, the banks which have those mortgage portfolios are still covered. So there's no uh, situation where they face negative equity or the potential of large-scale losses. So I actually think that's that's a very important consideration to keep in mind. You know, uh, banks by and large are well capitalized. However, I do think that investor sentiment will still tend to be negatively impacted by the fact that you know you, you have a lot of headline focus on what's happening in in housing markets. I think sentiment will obviously be impacted and particularly because you will have ongoing volatility most likely in the US banking sector. So that probably could undermine valuations from a spread perspective, but I'm actually quite comfortable in terms of the fundamentals. I don't see, you know, a large scale, you know, solvency issue for, for European banks in general. Although obviously, you know, in certain, mar in certain markets where house prices are going to face substantial corrections, you know, investor sentiment is going to be uh, is is going to be impacted. So that's that's kind of you know still ties in with our relatively positive thesis on 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 European banks. Uh, and I guess with that in mind, I'll just um, turn it back to you. And really, against this backdrop that I've articulated for the European banks, where do you see the outlook for euro dollar? And thinking about FX more broadly, what are the main trading 
themes you would focus on. Sure, thanks, Roberto. And that was um, actually a very useful discussion. I think um, uh, this presents a fairly interesting turnaround for Eurodollar. Um, I mean, for once, macro investors um, are having to deal with a situation where it looks like the Eurozone might actually be more resilient than the US on the banking issue, which is, you know, usually you find yourself um, as a macro investor on the other side of that equation. So I think um, it's something that is turned out to be relatively um, an encouraging development for European, uh, for Euro bulls. Um, and, you know, I think I think we have to think about FX and the Euro specifically and the FX more broadly as um, as fairly sort of path dependent events. Uh, so if you if you consider an outcome in which, um, you know, this doesn't really become a full blown U.S. banking crisis because the Fed's liquidity measures are are adequate. Um, I think in that outcome, uh, the very near term path for euro dollar um, is probably stronger. We could probably, uh, you know, get to sort of the 112, 113 type of levels, uh, our targets at 110. Uh, the reason I say that, um, that there is a little bit of a bullish bias around the target in the scenario is because in this outcome, um, clearly when this is a growth um, hit to the US specifically, that's where that's where the growth here is going to be loudest uh, because of the credit tightening. Uh, Europe, because the European rebound has been about lower energy prices, is going to be less affected by it. Um, and at the same time, the Fed will be pausing, but the ECB will still be hiking rates. We've already seen that in the um, pro in sort of the relative rate differentials between Europe and US. Rate differentials have moved starkly in favor of Euro, and in some measures are suggesting you know fair value metrics as high as one seventeen for the Euro. Now, this is typical, this move in rate differential is typical as the Fed pauses, uh, but what you really need for a convergence of currencies to this rate differential is for growth to pick up. And what's interesting to me is that as we're seeing this sort of U.S. banking stress develop, uh, focus and, and the impact sort of being focused more on U.S. growth idiosyncratically, uh, you know, at that same time, what you're seeing is an upturn in growth momentum. Uh, in Europe and, you know, our easies, for example, our economic activity, surprise indices have moved back into positive territory. So I think, you know, if this kind of scenario continues, that's why, you know, that's what gets euro dollar uh, probably uh, uh, a bit higher from what our targets are at the moment. The flip side of this is I think uh, the equation can change quite a bit very quickly if this becomes a full blown sort of crisis type scenario. Uh, which is, uh, you know, clearly not our base case, but, you know, it's always complicated when it comes to financial market uh, stress points, given the given the interlinkages between um, different um, entities. Uh, and I think, um, you know, you've, you've written about this, about how some of the banks in the periphery, for example, could be more vulnerable um, if banking stresses were to, alleviate, you know, were to, were to sort of flare up again. This could be a point of stress for euro that, you know, any widening in peripheral spreads, for example, tends to be a problem for euro. Um, similarly, any kind of growth trades uh, and euro, I would put very much as a growth trade right now, would sort of come under, uh, would become vulnerable in, in a crisis type of situation as well. So overall, I would say that, um, that you know, we're in a very path dependent situation. And if this ends up being an outcome in which uh, the US is just gradually slowing down, then actually euro dollar should be higher in that context. Uh, but, you know, if, if this becomes a full-blown crisis, then that starts to change the equation quite a bit. I think from a longer-term perspective, if I take a full-year 2023 perspective, you know, we have a lot of things to be concerned about for Europe. We still have geopolitical risks with Russia. We've got the energy vulnerability issue as we go into the next winter. 
You've got U.S. recession risks on the horizon. So, you know, it does warrant a fairly tactical approach. And we'll have to see how that plays out in third quarter. But any kind of U.S. recession and the cycle kind of dynamic typically does tend to be dollar bullish. So that's the other thing that we are keeping in mind. So um, as for the euro, like I said, for the broad dollar, similar story, very, very path dependent, very dependent. You know, a crisis, um, a, a banking crisis would make it a broadly dollar bullish scenario. But if you're talking about the U.S. mediocrity type of scenario where this is a U.S. specific issue, market is certainly focusing on the latter right now. Uh, you know, that would be more uh, concretely dollar bearish. Um, and that's the dynamic we're seeing unfold at the moment. We're not really chasing this because, you know, to us at the end of the day, the U U.S. recession risks is still the main thing that we're holding out for in 2023. And that typically tends to be uh, fairly dollar bullish. Uh, but equally, we aren't really fading this either. So I would I would sort of characterize our stance as fairly neutral on the dollar uh, and we're just sort of respecting the growth uptake that we're seeing out of China and Europe. As far as main trading themes are concerned, um, relatively sort of keeping dollar out of the equation, uh, we're really more focused on regional rotation issues. So if you talk about uh, US slowdown, but China growth pickup, uh, our preferred way to sort of express this is really through long Japanese yen, that's the currency that is the most uh, sensitive to declines in U.S. rates. Uh, and, uh, you know, equally against that, we are underweight currencies uh, or bearish in currencies where vulnerability to a high hold uh, environment is the is the largest. You mentioned Sweden, where housing market is particularly uh, vulnerable. Uh, you know, we have had uh, a fairly uh, bearish stance on, um, on stocky. Uh, with that in mind, uh, I would put New Zealand in that bucket as well. Um, and if I take a look at um, if I took it, take a look at sort of the more growth sensitive spectrum uh, outside of uh, DMFX, our, our EM strategists have turned underweight uh, EMFX as well. Uh, but you know, with a smattering of caddy in it, uh, where Mexico or and some other candidates in LATAM continue to uh, offer a fair amount of uh, yield pickup, even relative to the U.S. dollar at five percent. So I'll stop there. Uh, more details on uh, this discussion are available on jpmorganmarkets.com. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please refer to JP Morgan Research Reports related to its content for more information, including important disclosures. 2023 JP Morgan Chase and Company All Rights Reserved. This episode was recorded on April 14, 2023.